morning, everyone. If I could, just by way of a show of hands, if I could take a survey, a poll in the room, if I were to ask you if you would like to know the exact day of your death, how many of you would like to know? Like, if you could find out how many of you would like to know I'm going to die on this day, okay? A handful of you in here, like every service I had, a good hand. Now, how many of you are like, nope, I don't want to know that information at all? Yeah, that's been the... Now, I would probably be in the category of not wanting to know the day of my death because I'm not sure my obsessive-compulsive personality could handle such information very well. So if I had a choice, I would say, no, thank you. But I will confess, in terms of shaping my life, knowing how much time I had left would definitely have a powerful effect on how I live my life. There's something about having a finite, definite number that just puts everything into perspective. In fact, Just for a moment, could you imagine being at the doctor's office and him walking in and telling you you only had 30 days left to live? You're looking at about one month, 30 days to live. Can you imagine how that would then shape everything in regards to your life for 30 days and your behavior? With 30 days to live, I'm only doing the things that really matter to me. I'm not wasting my time on stupid stuff because I don't have time for stupid stuff. I've only got 30 days. So if you're at a job that is meaningless to you, that has no satisfaction, you're probably not going back for the rest of the 30 days. I'm definitely not going to start a brand new diet with just 30 days left. I'm not going to give my time to sit in some two-hour timeshare presentation. It's not worth it to me. Right now, time is ticking. Time is precious. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? I'm going skydiving. I'm going Rocky Mountain climbing. I'm going to ride 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I love deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave... Right, Tim McGraw this morning? You're welcome. You're welcome. See, without knowing the date of my death, it's just an abstract concept. I mean, I know I'm going to die, but it feels so out there, and I don't think about it much because of that it doesn't shape very much in regards to my life. But if I really were to think about it, and really were to, like, what I know is if you are turning age 65 this year, your life expectancy is projected to be, if you're a man, 84.3 years. 84.3 years. Now, congratulations to the ladies. You figured out the secret to a longer life. You would live to 86.6 years. That means that if I were to live the average lifespan given to us today, what that means is subtracting my current age, I have approximately 15,074 and a half days left. Now the countdown is on. And for whatever reason, the Bible wants us to know this. The Bible wants us to know that your life is really short. Like, in terms of the scope of time, you're like a blip. And it wants you to know because it thinks that the Bible seems to think that there is great wisdom and understanding that because our life is so short, and if we could keep that in mind, it will affect then how we live. And so we have scriptures like Psalm 39, verse 4 and 5. This is the David, uh, the psalmist, and he would answer with those of you who raised your hand to the first part, like, yeah, I'd want to know my death. He says this in verse 4, show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Or Job 7, verse 7 to 10 will say, Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. The eyes that now see me, that sees me, will no longer see me. And you will look for me, but, I will not be no, but I'll be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so one who goes down to the grave does not return. 
He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. Or Job 8, 9 says, For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth, they're like just a shadow. Or when you get to the New Testament, Jesus' brother James, he'll say this in James 4, 14, Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. There's something about recognizing the brevity of our days and the smallness of our existence that one helps keep us humble but also helps us to prioritize. And so when you're having to make important decisions in life, you should do so with the reality of, yeah, your life is very short. Like, so whatever you decide today, make it in light of the fact that your life is short. In fact, I've had a couple experiences where you kind of get the full impact of, well, we're like a speck. Like, uh, whether it's the age of the universe, I've seen a calendar that kind of illustrates that. And I watched a video the other day, I want to show this uh, this morning, of the size and scope of the universe and it were such a small speck. So take a look at this video as it kind of it keeps going ten times as each ring to kind of show this is how big the universe is in our place. And it. Take a look at this video.
much as I was like, they were so small. Like, we're like a speck out in the vast universe, and even the speck that we are in the universe in terms of time is just a vapor. And this is where the book of Ecclesiastes comes in. This will be the foundation of our study, will be out of Ecclesiastes. We, we started last week by talking about the key to having a good funeral is to have a good life, meaning that at the end, we're able to gather together at your funeral and celebrate the life that you had. And because of that, you should realize that you are right now writing your obituary. Because of that, you should write a good one. Now, Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of sort of a, an old man who lived a life full denying himself nothing in terms of experience or pursuit or pleasure. And now he's looking back from the perspective of his death, and he's writing to give some advice to young people, saying, time is short, don't waste it. So I picture in my mind a little bit of the Johnny Cash character kind of looking back at his entire life, and now he's got death in front of him. And so when he writes, it, it is a depressed tone about the meaningless stuff that you can spend your life on. So if you take depression medications, now would be a good time to take one as we're about to enter into the book of Ecclesiastes. But I do want us to listen to the wise teacher and what he says in regards to, hey, listen, if you spend your whole life on this, when we're at your funeral, we're going to look back and go, oh, that was such a waste. And so he starts to compile a list. Now, I'm going to read a lot from Ecclesiastes. I hope you won't get lost in it, but I want you to hear kind of his list. I'm going to give you several points that he makes. And the first one is simply the idea of chasing after the newest thing. Like, you know, that spirit, like, got to have the newest, got to have the latest. There's always, like, something better. You're always on the horizon. And he, he knows what that feels like. And so he sits down and he says, that's totally meaningless. This is what he says in Ecclesiastes 1, starting out in verse 1. He says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, Everything is meaningless, right? It's the pick-me-up today, right? Like, thanks. <clears throat> what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It's already, it was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who followed them. What he was saying is, in the end, nothing's really new. I mean, I know we, wow, this is the newest, the late, like, how many of you already ordered the iPhone 6? Like, who's, anyone, anyone? My wife has ordered the iPhone 6. That's, like, it's the, it's the newest. It's the, the latest. And sometimes we have this, don't we, in terms of desires, like the car models, right? We want to get the newest car, the latest model that has all the bells and whistles. I mean, you mean to tell me your car doesn't have the seat warmer? Are you kidding? Like, how do you live without having your buns nice and toasty warm in the winter months here in northern Indiana? You mean your car doesn't have that Bluetooth syncing device on your, uh, in the car that you can sync to your phone for your messages and telephone calls and music? And they, how can you even live? And there's something in us that's always going after and chasing the new. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us that in the end, it won't mean a thing. Like, we won't gather at your funeral and say, well, they had the iPhone 12. Like, nobody... They, like, Nobody cares. And then he puts another category. He says, let's talk about wisdom for a moment. Because, you know, 
he was the great teacher, and he pursued wisdom. But even for, and this is a category that, well, if you're going to pursue something, at least let it be wisdom. But even he says, no, really, in the end, I've kind of found this to be meaningless too. He'll say this in verse 12. He'll say, the teacher was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. And what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. And then when you flip over in Ecclesiastes to chapter 2, he'll say this in verse 12. Then again, I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. So what then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. I find it, he'll say, okay, wisdom is better than stupidity. Like you've got your choice between being wise or being stupid. Choose wise. But in the end, the most educated will still meet the same fate as the town idiot. The teacher is saying, I think, go ahead and finish up the degree and get on with it. It's time to graduate and move on. The pursuit of more and more study and wisdom is a complete waste of time. So kids, listen, tomorrow you can go in and say to your teacher, my pastor said I don't have to do my homework because it is meaningless. (laughs) Especially the math part. Total waste of your time. Like, no, I'm just kidding. The third thing on his list. Okay, chasing wisdom. The next is chasing after pleasure. Chasing after pleasure. He'll say this, chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I mean, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Now, before he thinks that he went crazy, he does let us know when he uh, embraced folly, my mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So he makes his list. I undertook great projects. I mean, I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. What the teacher is saying is, yeah, the pursuit uh, for more... And pleasure is never-ending. And in the end, you will never have satisfied. In the end, if you spend your entire life on it, you'll look back and go, I think I wasted my life. 
it will prove to be meaningless. You could take this into your bosses tomorrow. Um, he also has on his list the idea of professional advancement or working too hard and spending all your time. And he'll say this in Ecclesiastes 2. This makes his list for 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. I don't think he gets invited to many parties. Like he's just kind of, I don't think he. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom and knowledge and skill and then they must leave it all to another who is not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain, and even at night, their minds don't rest. This, too, is meaningless. See, the teacher is telling us what we know. Like, if you talk to hospice nurses or those who are engaged with those who are in the process of dying, one of the, one of the biggest regrets of those who are dying when they look back is they spend too much time in the office. Like they spend too much time at work instead of being with their family or being with their friends or being with things that really matter. And if they could go back and do it all over again, they wouldn't have worked so hard. They gave 45 years of their life to their career and were replaced in an instant with a gold watch and a cake. He says, yeah, but even advancing yourself in life, like just that too is a way. He's trying to climb the ladder of life. He'll say this in Ecclesiastes 4.13. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship where he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. And I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. Do you see what he's saying here? Like, we didn't like the king, so we went for the youthful successor. And it wasn't too long after that. We didn't like him either. And so, like, no one's ever happy. He says, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And here's the last thing I'll offer to you on the list here. Last, last thing. Like, pursuing a bunch of money, well, let's at least get rich while we're here in this short life. He says, this will be a waste of your time too. Ecclesiastes 5.8 says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortunes that they, when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil and they could carry it that they could carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. What the teacher's telling us is that the rich and the poor, like they all in the end share the same fate. They'll it'll be six feet under. Now how's this for a pick me up? You feel good? I'm glad I came to church. This is now, before we dismiss the writer of Ecclesiastes as a jaded and cynical old man, let me suggest that he's actually giving us a key to a good funeral. And what he's advocating, as you can see, is, listen, your life is short. 
So don't waste it on things that are worth nothing, things that don't carry on, that don't provide a worthwhile life. You can spend your whole life in pursuit of things that ultimately have no significance or bearing. And then when we gather for your funeral, we won't know what to say because the things that matter the most were not a part of your life. But there is a positive note to Ecclesiastes, and I want to end with this. Ecclesiastes, while being overly negative, I confess, and there's something morbid about me that enjoys that, I don't know why, but it does have a positive tone. In fact, the teacher has advice, and he'll offer it over and over again. What will happen is, if you read Ecclesiastes several times, you'll start to know that there's a rhythm to it, that there's a pattern to it, that there's an order, and in the order, there is a repetitive refrain. The teacher will tell us, yes, this is a waste, this is meaningless, this is a waste of time, and this is another injustice I've seen on the face of the earth. But in between these observations, you will hear a continual refrain over and over again. And it will be this, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. And he'll repeat it in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 12 and 13. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is a gift from God. Or Ecclesiastes 3, 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? And then when you get to chapter 5, verse 18, this is what I have observed to be good. That is it appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and then the other to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. And then when you get to chapter 8, verse 15, so I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to, what does he say? To eat and to drink and to be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. And then again, when you get to chapter 9, verse 7, the last one's here. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. And I think at the end of Ecclesiastes, where the teacher, after seeing everything in his life, his advice to us would be, you guys need to just slow your roll and enjoy life. That we're so caught up in a spirit of dissatisfaction that has us perpetually going after more pleasure, more wisdom, more wealth, more advanced, the newest, the latest. And that spirit drives us, and then we get driven by this spirit. We simply forget to slow down and to live here and now with what God has placed in our hands. I think it's always interesting to compare cultures. Like when you travel, you get to see different cultures and how they operate and how they live, and you know, especially America, you know, culture here in the United States versus other parts of the world I find very interesting. For example, like the number of vacation days, the holidays that we get here are like, you're lucky if you get two weeks starting out at a new job. But did you know in other parts of the world, I mean, it's like months. Like they get 
holidays galore. Or the rhythms of life versus the rest of the world. Did you know in some parts of the world, in some nations, they have this thing called a siesta? Do you know what a siesta is? It's a nap in the middle of the afternoon. It's, it's brilliant. Like, why are we not doing this? Like, we should be doing these things. Like, in the amount of hours that we work here in the United States versus the number of hours that they work around the rest of the world. And I don't say it like, hey, we're all the hardest workers. Like, no, like, this is all meaningless. We should have time to enjoy life. And I think the teacher would tell us, just enjoy the moment and what you have. And I think the message of Ecclesiastes is best summed up in, anyone watch the movie Dead Poets Society? Anyone watch the movie? Like, I want to show you this clip, because this is the message of Ecclesiastes for us this morning. Take a look at this. Gather you rosebuds while you may, old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Thank you, Mr. Pitts. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Now, who knows what that means? Carpe diem. That cease the day. Very good, Mr. Meeks. Meeks. Another unusual name. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Thank you for playing anyway. Because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. I'd like you to step forward over here and peruse some of the faces from the past. You've walked past them many times. I don't think you've really looked at them. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen. You hear it? I think, in short, this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us to let's just seize today and enjoy this moment. And that's why he keeps repeating his refrain of eat, drink, and be satisfied with what God has placed in your hand. This makes for a life well lived, and it makes then for a good funeral. 
And I know we don't hear this much in terms of church, especially as we spend a lot of time in the New Testament, because the New Testament is intense. I mean, it's like it's written in less than 100 years' time. It has this idea of Jesus is going to show up at any moment. It's, just, it's, it's, it's all about the spread of the gospel and power. I mean, it's just it's very intense. In contrast, the Old Testament, it like, it's written over a span of 1,500 years. It has a long-term perspective of life. And I think it's okay for us to live the life of the New Testament, being reminded by the voices of the Old Testament that, hey, sometimes you can't live in that intensity all the time, and you need to stop for just a moment and slow down and enjoy. Sometimes we tend to be, oh, the only thing that matters is the treasures in heaven. We know that's what Jesus said. The only thing that really matters is the life of the Spirit, and I'm all for that. But every, every once in a while, it's good to hear the voice from Scripture, from Ecclesiastes, and say, Let, just stop, breathe, and enjoy today. So your assignment, which I don't often give these assignments, but your assignment today, my invitation to you, is to follow the advice of the teacher and drop the mad pursuit to not be driven by discontent, and today simply drink in every moment that God has placed in your hand and just enjoy it. So when you leave here, if you go to lunch and you're eating an egg roll, let it be the best egg roll you've ever had. Or if you're eating a very cheesy burrito, let it be one of the best cheesy burritos you've ever had and enjoy it. And whatever drink is in your hand, and might I recommend Coke Zero because it's Jesus' favorite. As you sip it, enjoy every moment of it. This is a gift from the hand of God. And this is the life well lived. That in the end, when we have a funeral, allows all of our friends and family together to gather together and say, he enjoyed his life and everything that God placed in his hand. Amen. Why don't we stand together? I'm going to pray. Let's invite the band to come back up here. Father, we come and we ask right now that you give us a spirit of contentment and one that enjoys the things that you've placed in our hand. And we recognize that that's a spectrum from everybody in this room, the amount and quantity and maybe even quality of things. But in spite of that, we don't want to compare. We just simply want to enjoy what you have given to us. And so today we want to stop and enjoy the gifts that come from you, and then have a life that is well lived. So would you teach us how to enjoy the moment, how to enjoy the things that you've given to us, and keep us from a pursuit of things that in the end are a complete waste of our time and completely meaningless. And so the very short life that is, that's such a vapor, we lift our lives up to you and pray that you'd use them for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.